Get this straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. For your enjoyment, Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum brings you Raymond Chandler's most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Delicious. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Face to Forget. All right, wise guy. I told you once you couldn't come up here to this room, Marlowe. That's right, landlord, but I found all I needed. Well, you won't be able to use it after I teach you some manners. Snooper! Oh! I'll teach you to break into a respectable room and house. Not leading with your rights, you won't. Now get up. Come on, get up. Okay. I'll teach you something about cooperation, landlord. All I wanted to do was look this room over, and I was nice about asking. Cut it out. I, I got my rules. Yeah, and I got a job to do. I've been looking for Dave Stroud for a solid week, and his trail finally led me here. I, I got to look out for my rumor's privacy. Sure, sure. Only Dave Stroud checked out of here this afternoon. He's no longer your guest. Anyway, I found enough in here to know Stroud's taking the train tonight for San Francisco. So that winds up my lecture, and I'm happy to say my business with you and your charming establishment. Good night, landlord. <laughs> I stepped out of the cheap, musty rooming house into the warm night. I felt for the first time in a week that I wasn't wasting my time. That by tomorrow I'd know why a quiet young guy named Dave Stroud had suddenly dropped everything that gave life some sense. Everything from a lovely girl to a fine job and vanished. Completely. I stopped in a phone booth, called my client, and told her to meet me in an hour at the Leopard Spot, the bar in her hotel. Then I made a reservation on the 10 o'clock train for San Francisco went home and threw a toothbrush and shirt into a bag, and when I walked into the leopard spot, I was right on time. I found my client, Ellen Wyatt, in a booth near the back. The soft rose lights touching her face made me wonder all over again what kind of pressure it could possibly have been to drive Dade Stroud away from a girl like this. I tried to wait in my apartment upstairs, Phil, but I just couldn't. Is it good news? I hope so, Ellen. That broken-down rooming house over in East L.A. paid off all right. Dave was staying there? Yeah, he had been, under the name of Donald Stranigan. But why would he take a place like that? He must have plenty of money with him. Oh, well, the city's cluttered with those joints. They're as common as tin cans. He figured you can't look into all of them. We were just lucky. Then he knows what he's doing. There's nothing wrong with him like... like amnesia. No, it's something else, Helen. Good evening, Miss Wyatt. Martini? Yes, please. For you, sir? Martini sounds fine. Yes, sir. Right. Marlowe... Maybe that hunch I had about gambling, maybe it was right after all. Couldn't some kind of terrible jam with gamblers do this to Dave? Yeah, it might. But I checked that and drew a blank. Say, listen, Ellen, the description of Dave I got at that rooming house isn't too complete. Uh, that snapshot I asked you about, you bring it? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, good. It's in my purse. Ah. Uh, oh, here. Ah. That was taken on our first date four years ago. Four years ago? Those years made quite a change in both of you. Yes. Dave and I are good for each other, Phil. Oh, sure. I, I only hope that the next four Here we years. Are. A martini, very dry. Oh. Oh, thank you, sir. Well, I, I wish we had the kind of news we could toast. Maybe we will. 
Sooner than you think. You've got a new lead? You know where Dave is? Oh, well, close enough to be pretty sure he's taking a 10 o'clock to San Francisco. San Francisco? Yeah, and so am I. Phil. How about coming down to the station with me, huh? Me? Oh, but do you think that's wise? What if he saw me first? Well, it's worth a chance for you to point him out to me. What do you say, baby? Got something to drink to now? Yes, and I'd better do it fast before I start to ball. Tears would be awful in a martini. No luck, Phil. I still haven't seen you. Wait a minute. How about that one, Ellen? Over there at the cigar counter. Wait. Oh, the fellow in the T-shirt? Yeah. Uh-uh. Dave couldn't look that sloppy. And besides, he's taller. Oh. Uh, well, that's it, Phil. Yeah. Well, I guess we missed him. I better get aboard, huh? This kind of scares me. You, you don't think Dave just pretended to be leaving that he tricked you? No, no. Those leads weren't planted. They weren't that good. Don't worry, baby. Dave will be on this train when it pulls out. I'll bet my last buck on it. Find him for me, Phil. Sure. You just keep that chin up. I will. Okay. And call me the very first chance you get. Call right. for train 61. Ooh, ooh. Pardon me, lady. I'm sorry. Hey, you, you and that brown bag. Me? Yeah, just a short minute, my friend. Unless you happen to favor dirty shirt size 17. <laughs> You're in for a big disappointment. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I think you made a small mistake there. Isn't that my bag? I'm afraid not, mister. C.P. is in Philip, M. is in Marlowe. Well, how do you like that? I saw you pick it up back there at the information booth. That's where I left mine. <laughs> I could have sworn it belonged to me. I'm sure sorry. It's all right. It happens to everybody sooner or later. Yeah, well, now that's now, mighty uh, big of you, friend. Say, you're going to be on old 61 for Frisco, too, aren't right you? Right so, yeah. Well, let's call this an introduction. Arbeck's my handle. Manny Arbeck, on the road for Pfeiffer Plumbing Fixtures. Yes, sir. I'll see you on board, friend. Not much doubt about that. Well, we might get up a little game. Fun, huh? Oh, fine. Yeah, well, I better shake a leg and get my bag. I'll find you, all right. I never forget a face. Maybe I ought to cut my head off. <laughs> I stopped off in my compartment just long enough to drop my suitcase. Then as we pulled out, I moved through the train to the dining car and picked a seat where I could keep an eye on the rest of the tables for Dave Stroud. Even if I didn't recognize his face, I knew from his fiancée would handle a knife-and-fork European style. He likely to order liver and bacon and drink tea without sugar, and would probably be dressed in wilted tweeds with his shirt collar open. Well, as soon as I sat down, the car began to fill. My table companion, a quiet tab collar type, had his own business and knew how to mind it. Almost 100%. Which he did for the 15 minutes it took him to eat. Well, I don't know why food always tastes better on a train, but it does. Thanks for letting me share the table with you. Oh, not at all. Uh, perhaps I'll see you later in the club car. We might have a nightcap. Yeah, it's a deal. Fine. Hmm. So long. So long. Oh, so there you are, oh, Marlo. fine. Hey, I've been looking high and low for you, my friend. What you doing in here? They serve nothing but food in this car, you know. <laughs> Say, who's your pal? I don't know. I don't know. He was here 15 minutes, and we didn't get that far. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You do? Yeah, those quiet birds give me the willies, too. You know, friend, I've seen him someplace before, and I never forget a face. You didn't catch his name, huh? He didn't throw it. He didn't throw it. Oh, <laughs> you like that, huh? Yes, sir, you're yeah. right on, my friend. Well, it'll come to me. Faces are kind of a hobby with me. I meet a lot of people, but I never forget a... Hey... 
Have you lost somebody in here the way you keep looking around? Yeah, but I think I found him again. Uh, hey, what's up? Where are you going? Play follow the leader. I'll see you, back. Uh, hey, uh, Marlowe, come back. You dropped something here. In spite of the fog kicked up by the traveling typhoon who never forgot a face... I'd managed to catch a glimpse of the door of a bunch of tweeds and an open collar on a bill that exactly fit the four-year-old snapshot in my wallet. I bucked a huddle of undecided dodges blocking the aisle, but managed to keep them in sight all the way back to car 16 without being seen. There I watched him unlock compartment L and go inside. I was convinced it was Dave Stroud, but at this point I had to be sure. I went to look for the conductor and finally found him tucked away at a lonely table back in the club car, as intent on his ticket count as a cheat at solitaire. I figured I could afford the time now, so I decided to wait. I headed back for the seat, and I ran into my dinner partner, the Tad Color. Well, hello again. <laughs> You're a little early for that nightcap, but sit down anyway. Thanks. Oh, by the way, I'm uh, Roy Tarney. Oh, mine's Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe? I've yeah. read that name many times. You're the famous private detective. Well, <laughs> private detective anyway. <laughs> Glad to know you, Tony. Privilege for me. Oh, are you looking for a match here? Yeah. No, keep them. Keep them. I have others. Oh, thanks. Thanks again. Are you on a case now, Marlo, or, or shouldn't I ask? Well, as a matter of fact, I... Hey, Marlo! Uh, no. Marlo! Man, are you hard to hang on to. But you're mighty lucky I'm honest, my friend. You see this? Yeah, I see. It's my wallet. Yeah. When you bolted out of the dining car, you dropped it on the seat. I found it for you. Oh. Nothing fell out but this picture here. And is she all right, man? Oh, man. Who is she, boy? The name, I mean, huh? Don't tell me. I bet you you've seen her before. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. I and so. I never forget a face. Uh-huh. Well, thanks. Now, if you let me have it, I'm very grateful. Yeah, and, sure, uh, sure. Glad to be of service, my friend. Oh. Anytime I can... Well, speaking of familiar faces, this is the gentleman that you had dinner with, huh? That's right, Albeck. This is the gentleman. Uh, Mr. Albeck, Mr. Tarney, for better or worse, till your destination do you part. How do you do? Tarney? Tarney, Tarney, Tarney. Now, that's funny. You know, I was just telling Marlowe here that I recognized you from someplace. Uh, it's very unlikely. I have a fair memory myself. <laughs> I don't remember you. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm pretty good. But, uh, hey, wait, wait a minute. I'm getting it. Sure, sure. <laughs> oh, this is silly. Why, I saw you tonight in the railroad station. No, no, that's impossible. I was so late I nearly missed the train. Me too. Only you had a good reason. <laughs> oh, yes, sir, my friend. You were kissing the little woman goodbye. I couldn't see her too well, but she was quite a looker. And judging from the way you were going at it, you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, now, wait, wait a minute, friend. I, I didn't mean any offense. I, I was just kidding you along. Yeah, well, I guess I'll uh, go by my way into a little poker. Excuse me. I suppose there has to be one on every train. Yeah, yeah. They help the ride like a square wheel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'll go read a while, Marlowe. Good luck on your case. When the conductor climbed out of his pile of tickets to stretch, I went over, introduced myself, and asked the $64 question. Uh, car 16, compartment L, huh? Well, let's see. Oh, here it is, Mr. Marlowe. That, that room's occupied by one Daniel Stacy. Daniel Stacy. <laughs> sure. Same initials as Dave Stroud. But we're not carrying any Dave Stroud tonight. Don't bet on that, conductor. It was that simple. I walked up through the train to car 16, and 
When I got to the door of compartment L, I'd already decided on how to handle Dave. Convince him that he had to go back to Ellen Wyatt regardless of what had happened to him. Yeah, I had it all figured until I heard it. It had come from inside. The door was unlocked, but the lights were out. When I got them on again, I realized that nothing was simple. Ever. Stretched out on the floor of Dave's room was Manny Auerbach, staring straight up as he rocked with the pitch of the train, the side of his head against the sharp steel corner, his eyes already beginning to glaze. He said he knew I'd remember sometime. Remember what? Why did you come here, Manny? He said I'd remember... Manny! Manny! Well, Marlo, it's your move again. Let's see you tell this tale in wise. Who's that? What? Ooh! Oh. To make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to refreshing, delicious Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. The lively, full-bodied, real mint flavor cools your mouth, moistens your throat, freshens your taste. And the chewing itself gives you a little lift, helps you keep going at your best. So for real chewing enjoyment that's refreshing and long-lasting, always keep Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum handy. Healthful, delicious Wrigley's Spearmint Gum will make every day more enjoyable. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's exciting story, The Face to Forget. Either it had been the flat of the pistol crashing against the side of my head, or my head crashing against the stone-hard floor of the compartment. That it turned light into dark and left me with a welt behind one ear the size and shape of a cue ball. I couldn't tell which. But when I had both my eyes open, I knew that it didn't matter. That nothing mattered really except that I was staring into Manny Auerbach's dead face. While only inches away, a pair of feet were moving. Feet that belonged to Dave Stroud, whose suitcase and toe was on his way out. One hand already on the doorknob. I went for him around the knees. Let go! Let go, I see! By the time I I was off the floor and after him, he was well out in front. But wrestling with a heavy steel door at the end of the empty passageway slowed him down. When we reached the platform between the cars, he was almost mine. But then suddenly a hand shot out of the dark, grabbed a fistful of shirt front and spun me hard against the opposite door. A hand that belonged to a man in a tab color. Mr. Roy Tarney, plus a shiny 22 automatic, and minus his club car velvet voice. Get up, Marlowe. We've got a little talk coming. At this stage, it'll be a pleasure. Believe me. We'll see. What do you want with Dave Stroud? I'm a census taker who's real... Cut it. Time is running short, Marlowe. When you get off at this stop coming up, you stay off. Eh? What's your angle? Dave. He still needs my help, and he's still gonna have it. No matter who he kills... Kills? What's that supposed to mean? Manny Auerbach, the chummy one who couldn't forget faces. He's very dead back in Dave's compartment. Well, then, then that loudmouth wasn't just a blowhard salesman after all. He was what Dave's been running from, one of those lousy card shop. Slips, Antony. Huh, yeah, but they don't count, Mr. Detective. Nothing counts anymore but Dave getting out of a jam that can cost him his hide. 
just for the record. That game back in L.A. three months ago that cost Dave every cent he had plus ten grand he didn't was about as level as the rest of that knee pants town ever gets. Which makes you what? Two things, smart Alec. First, a guy from Detroit, a real town, who doesn't like a lousy fix. And second, I like a fix even less when the sucker on tap is my own brother. Now, people, get back away from that door. The station's on that side. I wouldn't want you to run for it and get shot before you got to say a few words. Back over here, Marlow. Uh, take it easy with that gun, huh? They go off, you know. All right, the pitch. Let's have it now. What's Dave to you? Ellen Wyatt. Mean anything? Not very much. But Dave is sorry about that. So when you get back to your client, you Carter. tell it... Hold it. Carter, Just like you are in state cheerful. This stop, Carter. Carter, gentlemen. Uh, conductor, this, uh, this train wait here a while? I mean, is there any time to get off and stretch? No, sir. Just stop long enough to pick up a little mail, leave a little mail, once in a while take on a passenger. Hardly ever, though, Carter folks aren't much on traveling. Oh, by the way, aren't you the gentleman who was looking for Mr. Stacy? Uh, yeah... I found him, thanks. Oh, don't mention it. Glad to be of service. Say, don't get too close to the edge there, gentlemen. Carter! Carter, California! We, uh, we were talking about Ellen Wyatt, honey. Why didn't precious brother Dave ever let her know that he had to lay low, that he was in a jam with gamblers? A bunch of roses with card and clothes could have gone a long way, or again, there's the telephone. Oh, button that up, Marlowe. I don't know any of the details. Maybe the kid didn't want to know he couldn't stay away from the pasteboards. Maybe he just didn't want it to worry. Anyway, that's not the point. Then what is? That a broken heart beats a broken skull seven times a week. You should know that much, Pete. So? So I don't want you, the girl, or anyone else to know where Dave is heading. At least not until I get back to L.A., buy my lonesome, and call a few spades just that. Like they do in Detroit, maybe, huh? Like they do in Detroit, no, maybe. You tell the Wyatt, babe, I'll look her up then. Now you get over there at the door and you take your choice. Jump or get pushed? Jump, pushed, or shot. Go on, Marlowe. This is where you get off. <clears throat> Go on, the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be. Name it. Jump, push, or shot. I couldn't say much for the alternatives. But one look back over my shoulder at the gaping 22 automatic level at my head and Tony's ice-cold gray eyes above made up my mind for me. Jump, it had to be! remember one thing about Carter, California. The right of way was more sand than stone. I, I was grateful. Ten minutes ago. No, no package for you, Miss Lillyspan. I'm sure, sure, I'm sure. Huh? Me snapping at you. Now listen, Miss Lilly. Yeah. Brass of some people. Say, hey, what happened to you, son? I tripped. Dad, this is important. Can you tell me where the limited stops next? Well, is anybody getting on at Murdoch Corner? No, no, no. Uh, the first real stop. A good sized town. Let's see. Smoke cigar, son? No, no, no. Thank... Look, Dad, this counts. Now, come on, tell me, will you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, now, uh, there's Fulton. That's a half-hour wait. Oh. Uh, you got a match, please, son? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Here's a whole book, Keaton. Now, tell me, how far is Fulton? Forty, maybe fifty miles. Upgrade on the road. How can I get there in a hurry? I gotta catch that train. Well, uh, if you got a car, you can. uh, Where can I rent a car or get a cab? (laughs) It is not a chance, honey. Oh, excuse me, Jake's calling from Bakersfield. He's uh, he's expecting a grandchild. All right, for Jake. Now listen to me, Dad. There's a dead man on the limited, and this killer as well. And I was tossed off a train. Now let's take the business. Well, 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 in that case, let's call ahead and get the police. No, I don't want that. Well, uh, why not, son? Because for one thing, the killer may have been justified. Self-defense and the sight of the law will toss him into a lot of panic. It'll only end up in more gunplay. And for another, I have a very personal axe to grind. Uh, Getting tossed off the train, huh? Yeah, among other things. Now, will you tell me that coupe out there? Is it yours? Yeah, but I can't let you take my car. You're a straight... Cash? Cash. Here. Also, here's my credentials. I'm a private detective out of L.A. I'll get uh, your car back to you as soon as possible. I'll pay you another 50 when I do. Uh, now, give me the keys, will you? Quick. Yeah, yeah, sure, 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 okay. sure. Here, here, it's one in the middle. Thanks, Dad, and don't worry. I'll drive real ca- Re- oh, oh, What's the matter, son? Well, you're staring like you don't feel so good. What is it? Uh, your head, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, my head, maybe. I ought to have it examined. Sometimes it's real slow coming up with the truth. The truth? What do you mean, son? I mean, I got a big fat hunch, a hunch that may be able to stop a second murder if I make it to Fulton in time. So long, Dad. Thanks a lot. You've been a great help. My apologies and congratulations to Jake. Like the station agent himself, Willard Hansen's coupe was a little less than spry. But with the accelerator jammed hard to the floor and only straight, empty highway ahead, I managed to keep it at a straining 70 most of the way. And 50 minutes later, when I tore into Fulton and followed the street markers to the station, a long, low, welcome sound in the night told me I was on time. The train was just getting underway again. I slammed to a stop at the end of the depot, piled out of the coupe and started to run for the last car. But I changed my mind. The train could chug on its merry way without me. After all, it was going without Dave Stroud and his big brother. Two men were walking down the deserted platform toward me. I slid back into the shadows of a pile of crates and waited. My hand tight on the 38 in my pocket, suddenly positive that my hunch was now a sure thing. Roy Tawney was not Dave's brother, but he was the one who had murdered Manny Owl back in car 16, compartment L. And he was ready to try murder again. All right, Stroud, that's far enough. Hold it there. Tawney, you're out of your mind. You've got no reason to kill me. I'll never say anything. Ellen knows that. That's why I ran. I could never turn Ellen over to the police. I I love her. Oh, yeah, sure. You're nuts about it. You got lots of reasons to be, haven't you? Reasons like Ellen crossing you up for me and a tall stack of dough. Reasons like knowing that we're both responsible for knocking off our ex-boss to come into that dough. Sure, kid. You got lots of reasons to love her. But, Tarney, I tell you, I do. I ran away, didn't I? Oh, but of course, Mr. Stroud, of course. You ran so that you could wait for a smart time in a smart place to try blackmail. No, no, that's not it. I ran because I love Ellen. Because whatever she's done has been your fault. Oh, no, kid. You've got it all wrong. The lady was the pilot all the way. Even to hire a lousy peeper named Marlowe to tag you so that I'd know where to get my hands on you. The, the man on the floor in my compartment? The dead man? That was a loudmouth salesman with a memory for faces. He would have spoiled everything if he'd remembered that he saw me with Ellen in the railroad station and passed it on to Marlowe. I had to shut him up and then give the peeper a big cock and bull story about you being my brother and in hot water with gamblers. And Marlowe was the other one, the one who grabbed for me. That's right, Stroud. That was Marlowe. Too bad he didn't grab better, isn't it? Yeah, perfect shame, Tony. Put your dirty... Oh, shut up! 
Next two of us. Is he, is he dead, Marlo? Yeah, Dave. Even in Detroit, he'd be called dead. Come on, Dave. We got some telephone calls to make. The police, for one. All right. Marlo, is all this really true? Yeah, I'm afraid so, Dave. The girl you wouldn't turn in for murder wanted to murder you. Believe it, kid, all at once. It'll be easier later on that way. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Marlo, for getting here when you did. You saved my life. Well, not exactly. A guy named Willis Hansett gets part credit for that. A guy who runs a railroad station at Carter, California, and also smokes cigars and sometimes runs out of matches. <laughs> what does that have to do with it? Everything, Dave. See, Hans had needed a light, and I gave him a book of matches that Roy Tony had given me earlier in the club car. I hadn't noticed them then, but I did when Hans had used them. They came from the leopard spot, Dave. The leopard spot? Yeah. The, the cocktail lounge at Ellen's hotel? That's right. And I couldn't buy Tony's having them as just coincidence that tied him into Ellen too tight. A hunch said so. Wait here, will you, kid? I'll only be a couple of minutes. I've got a long-distance call to make before we get in touch with the police. To Ellen? What are you going to tell her, Marlo? Anything, Dave. Anything that'll keep her right where she is, ready and waiting for what's going to turn out to be the, uh, L.A. police. I won't be long, kid. After the telephone call, Dave and I spent a long hour with the Fulton police, explaining why a man named Roy Tawney was lying in their quiet railroad station, face down in a pool of his own blood. And it was a long hour again with the railroad officials who arrived with their own set of questions. Well, it was four o'clock in the morning before we were finally aboard a train, heading back for L.A. Dave Stroud and I sat opposite each other in silence through that bleak, empty hour when you can almost feel the day that's coming up nudge the one that's just gone by. I was real glad to see it go. I sat there looking at Stroud and wondered if he'd ever heard the lyrics of a song a train whistle always makes me think of. My mammy done told me. When I was in knee pants, my mammy done told me, son, a woman's a two-face. A worrisome thing will leave you to sing the blues in the night. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Harry Bartell, Sammy Hill, Roy Rowan, Parley Bear, Larry Dobkin, Elliot Reed, and Junius Matthews. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. The makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum invite you to be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time I tangled with three snakes. The first was made of gold, the second wore a mustache, and the third was in the bag. And each in its own way, poison. Poison.
Bob Stevenson speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. They were born at the same hour on the same day of the same parents. And they were identical in beauty and talent. Only one was deadly, but the other was not. And I couldn't tell which was which until I found a green purse, a fresh corpse, and a pair of dancing hands. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Dancing Hands. The telegram I found stuck in the mail slot when I got back to my office after a long and roundabout day read, Enclosed find a $50 money order. I want you to investigate a man. A table is reserved for you at the saddle club where I work. Come in time for the second show at 11, important. It was signed, Beth Tyler. So at a quarter to 11, with 50 bucks worth of inspiration behind me, I drove over the Coenga Freeway and out Ventura to the saddle club, which pretended to be old English by showing its beams through a flagstone facade. I went in the carefully rough-hewn oak door, and even before my eyes became adjusted to the cozy lack of candle power inside, Neil Redmond, owner and operator of the place, glided toward me sporting his genial host smile, which tonight was even more forced than usual. How are you, Marlo? It's been a long time. Business a pleasure, Phil. It's always a pleasure to come to the Saddle Club, Neil. I've even got a reservation. You know my food better than that, Marlo. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just don't let it get rough, will you? Come on, I'll find your table out front. I want you to see this show. A pair of twins and a twin piano act that's sensational. Yeah? Edie and Beth Tyler. Oh, here, how's this? Fine. Incidentally, uh, Edie will be the one on the left. With their twins, what's the difference? Funny. Edie may be Mrs. Redmond one of these days. Oh. Redmond, but you are wanted on the phone, sir. Uh, get the number, George, and I'll call back. This gentleman said you would talk to him, sir. It is uh, Mr. Paul Cedar. Paul Cedar. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Marlowe. Uh, this is important. I better take it. Redmond reacted to the name Cedar like a punch in the nose. But I figured that was none of my business, which was more than I could say for a flabby, dull-faced character at the next table who followed the nightclub owner all the way out of the room with a pair of watery red eyes, which he deliberately avoided turning in my direction. But at that point, an MC stepped out on the stage, and so I stopped worrying about Flabby in favor of the first look at my client. The Saddle Club is proud to present its second show of the evening, featuring the incomparable piano stylist, Edie and Beth, in Dancing Hands. Here they are, ladies and gentlemen. Bring them up. Ah! Curtains parted on a stage set with an oversized full-length mirror which reflected a grand piano, a black vase of yellow flowers, and a tall brunette with a wry, crisp waistline who touched up a piled-high hairdo, put on a pair of long black gloves, checked her hemline, and sat down at the piano. And she ran through an involved arpeggio while her reflection in the mirror looked on in admiration. It was an old but cute routine, and the illusion was perfect because the Tyler twins were practically identical. 
I took another look at Flabby, whose face was pushed up in a nasty leer. He stood up, dropped his cigarette into his drink, and tossed a crumpled bill down on the table, just as the lights went out for the trick part of the act. On the dark stage, two pairs of purple hands danced over two glowing silver keyboards. It would have been good, except that the pair of hands on the right, which belonged to Beth, suddenly stopped in midair and hit blue notes like a nine-year-old at her first recital. When the lights came up again, my client's face was as white as middle C, and the flabby character oozing a victorious smile was on his way to the door. Well, they wrapped it up fast after that, and Beth ran into the wings, leaving Edie to take the bow alone. The band took over in a hurry and brought things down to normal. So as couples moved down to the dance floor and George the waiter headed for my table, I sat back and waited for that message from my client. Here you are, sir. Compliments of the house. Oh, thanks. Any message with this? No, sir. Just that Mr. Redman had to leave. Oh, thanks, George. I sipped the double scotch and wondered if I should take the initiative and contact my client. When the message I'd been waiting for came, good and loud. I jumped up, shoved my way through the gaping dancers to the dressing room hallway behind the stage. A gang of club personnel was bunched in front of a door, obviously locked. Labeled Edie and Beth Tyler. Hey, was one of the twins, Hey, what's the matter? It's one of the twins. She's screaming. We gotta get in. That door's locked. Break it down. But I... Get out of the way. It's Edie. It's Edie. All right, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold it. She's all right. Clear out and give her a chance. Come on. Outside, everybody. Beat it. That means you two. Come on. Out. Here, Miss Tyler, take it easy. You're all right now. Come on, sit down. Tell me what happened. I don't know for sure. I was worried about Beth. I came back and didn't see her anywhere. Then I heard a noise in here. It was dark. I came in and, and someone grabbed me. A man? Yes. I don't know who it was. Mm-hmm. I screamed. He knocked me down. Then locked the door. Got out through the window there. Who are you? Oh, I'm Philip Marlowe, a private detective. Your sister hired me to investigate a guy. I was to meet her here after your number and find out about it. Any idea what's up? No, I can't imagine. But, gee, Beth has been terribly upset ever since last night. Oh? What happened last night? Well, for one thing, my purse was stolen. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see why that should upset her. Gee, there was nothing in it but $12 and my makeup stuff. Where's Beth now, do you know? No. I haven't seen her since she ran off the stage. I'm not even sure she came in here. No, she was here all right. She dropped one of her gloves. You're still wearing both of yours. Where do you girls live? Maybe she went home. Well, Beth has a cottage out on Hazeltine. 4179. You don't live together? How come? Well, gee, Mr. Marlowe, just working with Beth is hard enough. She's so sarcastic. <laughs> okay, I'll wear my thick skin. Uh, one more thing, Miss Tyler. Do you happen to know where Neil went? Neil's gone? Mm-hmm. Gee, that's funny. He always stays till the place closes. Oh, he must be coming right back. I'll take a look. Then I'm going out to see your sister. Sarcasm at all. I spent ten minutes questioning the help on the whereabouts of the boss and got nothing but double talk for answers. Since I was still carrying Beth's glove around with me, I dropped it in my pocket and went outside to my car. I'd opened the door and slid far enough under the wheel so I couldn't back out before I realized that the dough-faced flab was already there on the seat. His right hand wrapped around something blunt and menacing in his sloppy jacket pocket. You better come on in. What are you doing in my car, blubber boy? Don't get sassy now, mister. 
And the name is Sippy. That's no improvement, and that's no answer. All right. I, uh, saw you inside making with the big talk, so I says to myself, he's an interested party. I should look him up. Maybe we can do business together. All right, stay over there. What kind of business? I'm particular about the gutters I crawl in. It has to do with the twins inside there. You can get in touch with me later for further details. I got an angle, mister. You'll see when I leave. Yeah? When you tried to work that angle, you got to the wrong twin in the dressing room. Do you know that? I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sippy, where can I reach you? You'll find out if you really know what's up. <coughs> Don't try to follow me, though. I'll be seeing you. When Sippy slid out of the car and beat it, I made one move after him and then stopped cold. Because lying on the seat where he'd been sitting was a green leather handbag with the name Edie etched on it. I snapped it open. It had been stripped of everything but the scent of Amir and the smudged slip of paper that read Number 9 Arrow Motel, Lancashire Boulevard. So that was Sippy's address, and he had the stolen purse. But the why of all the commotion over 12 missing bucks was still the number one question mark. And I figured the best place for an answer to it was at Beth Tyler's. So I drove out to Hazeltine. But even before I stopped at number 4179, I heard the piano. I walked to the door and stood there a moment, listening. I eased it open. Slipped inside. Soft, indirect lighting accented the figure of a girl at the piano. The little waves of iridescent crimson chased themselves over the smooth, satin gown as she played. Glossy, blue-black hair fell to her shoulders. Beside her, a burning cigarette sent a single plume of smoke into the still air. Just for a moment, I found it difficult to remember that she was my client. <clears throat> You're... you're looking better, Beth. You're Philip Marlowe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dropped by to return your glove, among other things. Just put it there on the table. For the other one. Where did you get it, Marlowe? In your dressing room at the club. Your sister tangled with an unidentified man who was hiding there after you left. While we're on that, why'd you shove off so fast? I was scared. How'd you know I'd find you? You're a detective. Remember? Mm-hmm. Look, if you want to burn up your retainer playing hide-and-seek, it's your business. Now, who's the guy you want me to check on? The flabby one who made you blow up tonight? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I think my sweet twin sister is mixed up in something a little more serious than her usual scatterbrain escapades. Hmm. And the flabby guy is in on it because he has a green purse, right? How did you know that? He left it with me. Name is Sippy. He lives at the Arrow Motel, number nine. Knows something worthwhile about this business, and he's anxious to sell it. All of which puts him a hop, skip, and a jump ahead of your detective. Now, tell me, why is everybody, including Neil Redmond, all wound up over one stolen purse? What's it all about, baby? I don't know, baby. Suppose you find out and tell me. Wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that Neil loves your sister and you love Neil, would it? Marlowe, I hired you to investigate a man, not to pry into my personal affairs. And you'll get more for your money if I stop holding out on me. It's my money. Besides, I'm not holding out. Believe me. I'll try. Real hard. Well, as soon as I've got something, I'll call you. Where are you going now? 
My retainer entitles me to know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. First to the club to find Redmond and get his side of it, and then I'll probably drop in on our chum, Sippy, at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire. Good. I'll uh, keep a light in the window for you. Oh, sweet. <laughs> also keep your door locked. From the inside, baby. As I drove down the dark, winding street toward Ventura Boulevard, I caught a flash in the rearview mirror of a station wagon behind me. It looked like a tail, so I opened up. But it stayed with me. When it swung out into the left lane to pass, it suddenly cut in front of me. I jammed on the brakes as a spotlight slashed at my eyes, and when my front wheel banged against the curb, I was already half out of the car. Stop right where you are, fella. Don't come one inch closer, I'll drop you. I switched off the spotlight, and I saw a face the texture of a doormat over an embroidered purple shirt and orange tie. He had hand-tooled, high-heeled boots on and was topped off by a ten-quart cream-colored Stetson. But the doormat face was grim, and the silver-barreled cold pistol in his hand looked right at home. I followed you up here from the saddle club. I don't know what your game is or why you're messing around and what don't concern you, but I am to find out mighty quick, so start talking. Okay. First, I resent being crowded off the road. Second, I resent a spotlight in my face. And third, I don't like pistols pointed at my stomach. So cool off, Jesse James. You're wasting your time and mine. You got it wrong there, friend. Paul Cedar don't waste his time, and you're going to find that out. Paul Cedar, huh? Yeah. Don't tell me you're all excited over a stolen purse with 12 bucks in it. Twelve dollars? Yeah. Listen, clown, there's 30 grand missing somewhere between Redman and me, and I'm going to get it. 30,000? Yeah. Redman's a high roller, and that's okay with me. But he lost it fair and square in my joint over in Nevada, and I've been holding his markers much too long. So if I have to chalk that dough off to experience, it's going to be a pretty unpleasant experience for a certain party. Get me? Yeah, I get you. But you're shoving the wrong way, Longhorn. Somebody's trying to make a fool out of me, bright boy. And I don't stand for that. I'm liable to shove a lot of ways. And hard. So don't get underfoot. Uh, you're sure to get stepped on. So long, dude. <laughs> just a moment, we'll return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, tomorrow marks the anniversary of an important event in American history, the signing of the first peace treaty between the Indians and the Plymouth colonists. In commemoration of these events, CBS's Sunday night stars, Amos and Andy, will be found with a kingfish bearing the hatchet deeper than ever in their hopes and dreams. And CBS's own Jack Benny will be back again tomorrow with his special guest, Van Johnson. Invite some friends over. Sit back and enjoy the Jack Benny program. You can hear Amos and Andy every Sunday on most of these same CBS network stations and Jack Benny over them all. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Dancing Hands. The Texan from Nevada galloped off in his trusty station wagon. I forgot all about Neil Redmond and headed instead for Sippy and his further details at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire, where Bungalow 9 turned out to be an all-alone green and white collection of clapboard that showed light, a half-open door, and nobody home to my knock. When I tried knuckles on wood again and still got only a faint echo for reply, I stepped inside. There in the center of an ivory-white throw rug and clamoring for attention like an only child at a family reunion was a wide and wet circle of red. From there, the ugly splotches that narrowed as they got farther away trailed off until, 
Finally, in the next room, the path ended where I expected it to. The quiet form of Skippy, sprawled over an upset chair and holding his hands tight against the red on his left side. When I got to him, he was going fast. Thirty grand. A lot of dough. Didn't know I was shooting that high. And the, the twins... One, one, one what, Sippy? One of them. Did one of them do this? One, one, He's dead, isn't he, Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah, Redmond, he's very dead. Oh, no, Marlowe. I only found him a few seconds before you did. Yeah, and the rest of that run, you heard someone coming you didn't want to be seen, so you ducked back out of sight, huh? I don't buy it, Redmond, because for one thing, it's too pat. For another, how do you explain being here in the first place? Come on, fast. Okay, I'm here because I'm in a nasty jam. Like what? Like $30,000 I've got to pay in the next hour to a guy named Paul Cedar who's running out of patience in a hurry, believe me. About that, I do. I've already met the gentleman. But right now, Redmond, we're talking about Sippy. Okay. Last night, I had things to do, so I gave Edie Tyler the money for the payoff to Cedar. A couple of minutes after she stepped out of the club, somebody roughed her up and got away with a purse and the 30 grand. You're a liar, Redmond. Edie herself told me that purse only had 12 bucks in it. How come? Simple like, Marlowe. In my business, you never yell copper too soon or too loud. It doesn't pay. Mm -hmm. Now look, for the third time, Redmond, you and Sippy, how do you figure? I don't know. He was at the club tonight, acting funny. When he left, I got a glimpse of Edie's green purse sticking out of his topcoat pocket. Later on, I saw him run away from the car near the club, so I followed him. I ended up here a couple of minutes behind him, and that Marlowe was a truth, I swear. Would you do at the drop of a... Uh... Hey, wait a minute. Look, if you're telling the truth, I begin to get a different picture. And by that, I specifically mean a very talented but very sly dame named Beth Tyler. Oh, no, Marlowe. Why not? Because you love Beth's sister? Face it, Redmond, it doesn't add up any other way. Sippy here couldn't have stolen that purse from Edie. If he did, he'd have taken his dough and blow and not spent his time putting out feelers... But on the other hand, if Sippy happened to see Beth take it from Edie, empty it and toss it away, we've got another story, right? Yeah. Because he wouldn't make a move until he knew how much he had gotten away with. Exactly. But there he ran into trouble because he was trying to get close to Beth. And in doing that, he got mixed up and went for Edie instead, like tonight at the club. Sure. And that dying man's words just now about one twin. To which you can add the unpleasant fact that I personally ran off at the mouth when I was up at Beth's an hour ago. So she knew where to come for Sippy. Look, Redmond, it's got to run that way. I'm sure of it. Well, maybe you're right, Phil, but right or wrong, I'm still in a jam. So if you don't have any objections, I'm going back to my club now for a last try at raising that money again before Cedar shows. You mean you're going to face him, Neil, with or without her? I've got a Marlowe. You see, I own a fast club, all right, and I gamble a lot, too. But I don't welch on my markers no more than I knock over flappy little guys. You know what I mean, Phil? I think so. But don't fold now, Neil, because... I might still be lucky enough to catch up to Beth Tyler and your money both before your time runs out. And right now that means fast to a phone and a call to Edie, who might know which way a runaway twin would head. I'll see you, Neil. The nearest phone was at an all-night mobile gas station a block away. As I dialed Edie's number, a thought hit me. Maybe Beth wouldn't head anywhere. Maybe she'd just stick around. <laughs> Hello? Edie, this is Marlowe. Seen anything of Beth? No, I haven't. But why? What is it, Marlowe? Well, from where I stand, two things. First, your sister has the $30,012 that was in your purse last night. Oh? 
And second, she's just about it for a sloppy around the edges murder. Oh. Now, look, have you any idea where Beth would head if she had to get out of town in a hurry? No, I don't, Marlowe. Oh, well, maybe somebody up around her place does. I'll call you later. Marlowe, wait. Are, are you sold on this? I mean, about the things you said Beth did? Just about, Edie. But for your sake, let's hope I'm wrong. All the way, honey. Goodbye. <laughs> Driving fast back toward Beth's place on Hazeltine still left me enough time to think about a not-too-small detail that I'd completely overlooked. Thanks to me, the entire Los Angeles Police Department knew nothing about what was going on in and around the Saddle Club. Five minutes later, when I'd parked away from the dock and obviously deserted number 4179, I'd walked back and around to a pair of uncurtained French doors at the side. I knew that oversight is what is generally called a blunder. In the next second, I knew it was nothing compared to the one I was making currently. If you so much as turn your head again, Marlowe, I'll kill you. Not like you did Sippy, please, Beth. I'd hate to go that way. Sippy was a mistake, Marlowe, believe me. I was rushed. So you shot and ran, huh? Yes. But I didn't run too far. Because from where I stood, I could hear and see both you and Redmond and talking the whole thing over. And when you knew that we'd caught on to your act, you decided to follow me and see where I was going before you made your next move. Is that it? Exactly. Now get inside. Go on, the door's unlocked. Mm. All right. Now get over there, near that closet, and don't turn around. Why not? Afraid of the look on my face when you shoot? Shut up, Marlowe. And stop being brave. Because unless I have to, I'm not going to kill you. After all, you've already served your purpose. Which I presume was getting mixed up in this mess just long enough to find out about Sippy for you. You presume correctly. Mm -hmm. Also, you talk too much. Now open that closet and get inside. All right. Go on. As you say. But first, baby, one question. Did you do all this for the 30 grand alone? Or does it tie in with Neil Redmond and the way he feels about your sister, Edie? It's a little bit of each, Marlowe. But as I said, you talk too much. So get in there and shut up. Getting out of Beth Taylor's half-inch thick old closet was like arguing with an umpire. You couldn't be subtle. So 20 tiring minutes went by and the heels on both my feet were numb before the paneling finally gave in and I was out and over to the telephone to put in a call to the police. It should have been made a long time ago. But then, even as I was halfway through dialing the numbers, I saw something on an end table nearby that made me slowly change my mind. It was the two black gloves that Beth wore in the Dancing Hands Act. And while I stared at them like they were alive and beckoning, I thought hard for what must have been a full minute. And then suddenly I knew that my next stop had to be the Saddle Club. As I parked at the Saddle Club, I saw light drifting out of Neil's office, which was something I had expected. Inside, I moved along a dark hall toward what I knew would be the trio of Neil Redmond, the Nevada Texan, and Eddie Tyler. All right, Redmond. A raucous voice of Paul Cedar was anything but happy. How stupid you think I am! Oh, oh, Cedar, I'm telling the truth! Edie had the 30 grand, but somebody got it from her when she was on her way to you. That's a stinking line. You know it, Redmond. You never had the money. This whole thing's been a frame to stall me. And one way or another, I'm going to get you to admit that. No, you're not, Cedar. Uh, and if you don't drop that gun now, you're never going to do anything ever. Come on, let it go. Uh, All right. Now sit down and shut up and listen hard because Redmond's telling you the truth. What? Paulo, you know where the money is? That's right. And I also know who took it. 
Less than an hour ago, a little after I called you, Edie, Beth caught up to me and confessed the whole shebang, exactly as we figured it, Neil. You mean she admitted getting the money from Edie and using you to locate Sippy? That's right. But there's only one drawback to everything she admitted. None of it's true. What do you mean, Marlowe? I mean, Cedar, that Beth Tyler didn't steal your money from Edie here any more than she killed Sippy. I also mean that as far as I can tell, Beth Tyler was nothing more than a girl who played the piano and got upset when a stranger named Sippy started to bother her. And I never saw the real Beth Tyler after she ran away from a piano in the club tonight. That she's dead and that you, Edie, have been posing as Beth all night because, one, you yourself stole Neil's money and, two, you murdered your sister as well. No! Yes, Edie, come on, admit it, it's true. No, no, it isn't. I... I guess it isn't that, Marlowe. In Beth's body? In our dressing room. In the closet. I didn't want to kill her. But she found out that I had only pretended to be robbed when there was no one around. That Sippy had seen me scream and get rid of the purse myself. Sippy, who was only trying to muscle in on a deal, went to her by mistake, huh? Yes. That's how she knew what I'd done. When she confronted me in the dressing room, just before you came in, and said that she wouldn't stand by and let me do a thing like that to Neil, I lost my temper. You killed her, Edie. Yes, I did, Neil. And when Marlowe showed up after her scream, I said that someone had attacked me. And then I pretended to be both Beth and myself from there on to get out of the whole thing. And I... I almost did. But... But now I'm so sorry. Bad hours went by before the police had everybody's story and Paul Cedar and the 30,000 was gone for Nevada and Edie was gone for good. That left just Neil Redman and me alone and standing near the main bar in the club. Neil was doing his best to stay all in one piece. Well, Marlowe, it's been a tough night for you, hasn't it? Yeah, but a tough one for you, Neil. What with Cedar and the money and... The girls, Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah. At least it came out right before the cowboy got too tough, thanks to you. (laughs) Hey, tell me, Phil, how'd you know that Beth was dead and that Edie was both people all along? That was a couple of gloves, Neil, the ones they wore in their dancing hands act. You see, mm-hmm. when I first met Edie in the dressing room, she was wearing hers, and one of Beth's was on the floor. Hey, pour me one, will you? Yes, yes. Okay. I took it, and later when I met what I thought was Beth's, I returned it, and she put it with what we both thought was its mate. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. But a little while ago, when I got close to the gloves again, I saw that that couldn't be, that they were both for the left hand, Neil. Ah, then when Edie went to Beth's place to pass herself off as her sister, who she had already killed, she was smart enough to know that she should have only one glove around her. Yeah, but not smart enough to think about which glove it should be. From there, I worked backwards. Until you got to the three of us at the club and tried what you knew might be the right answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you were right, Phil, all the way. Yeah, but I was still gambling. If I had been wrong, Neil, I was giving the real Beth a long head start. Mm. It's always that way when you gamble, Phil. I know. Sometimes you pick right, sometimes wrong. Mm-hmm. Cards, dice. <laughs> Even with twins. Good night, fella. When I finally got to my car, started out of the valley and back toward Hollywood, it was better than 8 o'clock in the morning. And here and there as I drove, I... 
I saw people who I'd never heard of and who, well, who'd never heard of me stumbling outside after their morning papers. And I got to wondering what they were going to think when they read about a girl who had killed both her twin sister in a nightclub and a flabby guy in a motel who wasn't much good. Well, it was hard to say. And for myself, I was too tired to think. Or maybe I just didn't want to. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Lou Krugman, Ed Begley, Paul Fries, and Bert Holland. The special music is by Richard Oran. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... When it started, it was simple. Just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder... All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition and a match that burned with a bright green flame. (laughs) 